This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Very privileged this last week to celebrate a 20th anniversary with my wife. Um, thankful to God's grace and my wife's patience that made that event possible. Um, as we gathered together, we went out to eat, we went to the Caroline to eat, and we did what probably many people did uh, at an anniversary. You reflect, you remember, oh, what's the 20 years been like? Highs, lows. What about the day? What do you remember from the day? What was the weather like? Do you remember when this happened? Do you remember when that happened? An event stuck out to me. It was my responsibility to prep um, the program that you receive when you walk in because I have control issues. So it was my job to do that um, because inside of that program was directions on how to get from where the wedding ceremony was, the Baptist church that my wife grew up in, to the reception hall. We need people to get from point A to point B. It was my responsibility to get them there. The reception was at a beautiful uh, restaurant called the, uh, the Waterfall gathering a hall next to this beautiful cascading waterfall that went, eventually made its way down to Lake Erie. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Um, I needed to make sure that everyone knew step by step by step how to get from point A to point B. How do you get from the church down to the waterfall? And so I drove it many times, many times. I want to make sure that I get it and I understand it. And we go from here to here and it's a right turn and it's a left turn and it's this street name and that street name. I drove it so many times. I was so mindful that I put the wrong name, street names in. Yeah. I mean, most kind of spelled wrong. You could probably figure it out and guess it out. But this wasn't about just giving people information. This was about getting them from here to here. It needed to be right. It needed to be taken seriously. And so there was a lot of panic and a lot of post-wedding ceremony announcements. Hey, on the announcements, it says this, but you're looking for this. We want you to be able to join us at the waterfall, get you from A to B. God wants to get you from A to B. God is not about giving you information. God is about ushering in your transformation into Jesus Christ. It's not about just relaying here. Here's a bunch of facts. You haven't gathered here prayerfully to get some facts. Prayerfully, you're here to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. To become more loving and more kind and more gentle, more self-controlled, more patient. We're about formation, not information. That truth is at the basis of the disciples' question to Jesus. Teach us to pray. Jesus, we've watched your life. We watch how you engage. We watch what you do. You're kind and you're serving and you're loving and prayer seems to be such a big part of that. Teach us to pray. Teach us to make that an ever-present reality. And so in two places, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus teaches them to pray. He doesn't give them information. gives them a model, a way of life, a way of seeing the world. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, character. Kingdom, your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
about provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In your notes, maybe you're able to fill in some of those things on your own. You don't need to be prompted. You've been, maybe you've been working to memorize them. Do that. Do that if you haven't already. I've been using a hexagon as a little bit of a shape. Well, character. It's all about beginning with the character of God, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus, it's important to anchor a life of prayer in who God is. Who God is. I've been trying to ease myself back into social media. Um, God has convicted me that if I want to grow in being a loving person, then I need to surround myself with people I don't want to love which is basically people who see things differently than I do. And it's a whole lot easier just to push away from social media and not subject yourself to other people's opinions that differ than you, right? I had chosen the cowardly way out. God says, no, 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 let's learn to love people. Engage with people who see things differently than you do. I'm like, mm, not cool, not cool. And I was on a, um, was in a, a group, a contemplation and prayer, and they were having a heated discussion on the relevance of, the relevance of gender usage in the Bible and how the Bible is patriarchal. Here we go. I can do this. And if you want to call God mother, you can call God mother. If you want to call God father, God father. If you want to use she, you can use she. If you want to use they, you can use they. Gender doesn't matter when you talk to God. Gender doesn't matter in the Bible. I think when Jesus tells us to pray our Father, it's significant and it's important. Because there's something that, that communicates. And the answer isn't pushing away from fatherhood, but pressing into the message, the theology of what he is saying when he says pray our Father. God, you are the source of all life. Hallowed, hallowed, may you be hallowed. May my life reflect your holiness and your goodness. May I reflect you back to the world. Kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your way of doing things. May I see that manifest in my life. From your space down to this space down here. Here on earth as it is in heaven. Provision. Jesus says, hey, you need to anchor yourself in the reality that I provide for you. You woke up because I say you woke up. Daily bread, seeking God. Would you give me what I need today? Anchored in the story of, of manna in the Exodus. Forgiveness. And we only looked at the first part of forgiveness last week. We've talked about the other part of forgiveness in other series at other times. But in the same way that I need to seek the provision of God, I need to walk in a mindfulness of my own brokenness. He says, every day you ought to be coming before the Father and asking for forgiveness. Why? Because I guarantee you, every single day you've done something that mars you, mars creation, mars others, and we need to reconcile, and we need to connect back to that and figure out what's going on. Forgive us our debts. And it then continues, and what we're going to look at today, lead us not into temptation. So let's talk about that. Today. Lead us not into temptation. It was Pope Francis made an observation. He said, How unfortunate it is the translations that many of us read when we come to that line in the prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Why? Well, because it makes the point what good father would lead you into temptation? What good loving father 
would lead a child into a sinful environment that would corrupt and damage them, one that they will very likely fall and become succumbed to. What good father would do that? Especially when James specifically says in James chapter one, what? God does not, is not tempted, nor does he tempt others to sin. So how do we reconcile that? What does it mean? If you remember about two years ago, I started having us pray the Lord's Prayer a little bit differently. And a lot of the reason was it's this line. Lead us not into temptation. That word temptation, as soon as you hear it, where does your mind go? Donuts, or I mean, it's just, it's, that's tempting me. I, I know I shouldn't, but I want it. But the word for temptation is the same word translated often for trial or difficulty, a hardship. So I'm, I'm recognizing the fact that I'm going to face hardships today, difficulties today, not just temptations, but trials, tests. Our whole series on Lent was about that, wasn't it? God, you lead us into the wilderness, and you're going to test me. You're going to reveal where my faith is at. While you're testing me, it's very likely that evil is going to want to tempt me. We say, lead us, not into. Lead means guide, into means through. Father, guide me through today's challenges. Guide us through what we're going to be facing today. That sounds like a good prayer. The question is, how does he do that? How does Jesus in his graciousness, the Father in his love, guide us through the day's hardships? Those of you who grew up in a church culture probably have some very quick, accurate answers. What are some of the ways that God guides us? Bible, right? Bible, big fan. How many of you got one? So you got some of you, everyone, you all are in touching distance of a Bible. Do you see that? So right now, I want you all raise your hand. Yes. Raise my hand. Yes. Access to a Bible. Bible guides me. Beautiful. Those of you who have a little bit of theological background know that you are follower of Jesus Christ. Dwelt with the Holy Spirit. God dwells inside of you. Yep. Yep. What does the Holy Spirit do? He guides and he teaches and he convicts and he judges and he moves you forward. How many of you get, got, got the Holy Spirit? Beautiful, beautiful. Some of the Pentecostals are like, hey, now, like, it's okay, we'll be fine, okay? Bible and Holy Spirit and good friends, loving, mature followers of Jesus Christ who come alongside of us in our times of need to say, hey, let's move this direction. Oh, is that the best idea? How many of you are blessed with mature, godly people in your life that help you move forward? Awesome. I've got the Bible and I've got the Spirit and I've got mature godly people and I still make really bad choices. Anybody relate? Anyone else here relate? How many of you have access to a Bible, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and have good friends and still did something really stupid this week? (laughs) Tom's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Imagine, if you will, that you are at Elise and I's wedding and you needed to get from point A to point B. You have a copy of the correct instructions with you in the car. I'm sitting with you in the driver's seat. I know the way to get there. I know every turn. I know the obstacles. I know the construction because this is Pennsylvania. I know where the potholes are at. Potholes that just swallow a truck. There's even other good people in the car with us who know the way. Can you still make a wrong turn? 
can you still end up some other place? You sure can. Why? Because you're in the driver's seat. You're in the driver's seat. You can have the directions. You can have God himself indwelling in you. You can be surrounded by godly people. Why is it we can still make the wrong turn? That's what I want to talk about today. Today, because believe it or not, the Holy Spirit defers to you in your decision making. I don't want to talk about the Bible, and I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to talk about good friends. Today, I want to talk to a voice that you've already listened to today. I want to talk about a voice you've already submitted to today. I want to talk about something that's mentioned over 30 times, 30 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in some of his biggest letters, dedicate entire chapters to this thing. I want to talk about this guy. Who is that? Always let your conscience be your guide. Blue fairy comes through the window and comes to this little wooden doll and ding. I can move. I can talk. Am I a real boy? That's up to you, Pinocchio. You need to learn how to decide between right and wrong. Well, how will I do that? You need to follow your conscience. What's a conscience? And all of a sudden, an insect jumps off the bookshelf, floats down with an umbrella. I'll tell you what a conscience is. A conscience is that still small voice that nobody listens to anymore. 1940, Disney got it right. A conscience, according to Jiminy Cricket, is that still small voice that helps us know what's right and what's wrong. Believe it or not, the Bible actually talks about your conscience a lot. And so when we pray, God, lead us on into temptation. God, guide us. God, help us move forward. I want to talk about the one who's actually in the driver's seat. You. So take your notes, flip them over. There's a big open square there where oftentimes I'll put discussion questions. I want to give you some basic observations on what the Bible says uh, about conscience. I'm going to take four things uh, in the beginning and I'm going to compress them all together to give us a working definition based on scripture and good um, lexicon work. And we'll get a good definition and I'll give you a few more ideas as we look at scripture. You'll also see there a bunch of verses if you want to go and do your own deep dive, and these are the verses I'll be referencing throughout, I'm going to go through these verses very quickly throughout the course of the message. I don't want you to miss the opportunity of doing a deep dive on your own, so they're all there. If you wanted to study more on the conscience, and also I've included a book that I would recommend uh, if you want to do a more deep dive into a conscience from a biblical perspective. So what can we say about the conscience? What should we say about the conscience? Here, here, here's something to note. The conscience is a gift from God. Conscience is a gift from God. If you want to write that down somewhere in that big white box, you are free to do that. This is where we uh, develop that. In Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14 is one of those big chapters in the Bible that talks about conscience. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Romans 14, I'm going to read 23, uh, 22 and 23. Just note these verses. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin. This is in verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed. A good conscience is a blessing from God. A conscience that's clear and clean. A conscience that conforms to God's truth is a blessing. It's a gift to you. Kind of like touch, the, the sense of touch. That's a gift from God, isn't it? It lets us experience reality. It lets us enjoy what God has created. It warns us to let us know that something bad has happened to the body. Example, anecdote from Paul's life involving a barbecue grill. I was at the barbecue grill. I was, I can't remember if it was chickens or hot dogs, it doesn't matter, but going in and out of the house from our back porch to where the grill is, from the grill back to the back porch. And I was doing it faster than I probably should have. I was doing it with a lack of care such that my little toe had to get into the discussion. As I drove my little toe into the edge of the metal barbecue grill, okay? Isn't it amazing? Something so small can have such a big opinion <laughs> and affect something so large. <laughs> so here I am. I have now wounded, cracked. There is blood. There is pain surging through my body. And because I normally require two legs to stand on, one of them is now out of the mix, which means I now need to balance myself and I put my hand down. Oh, yes, Aaron Glosser, I did. <laughs> on the top of the grill. <laughs> and then this hand got involved in the discussion. <laughs> Letting me know what? What was going on? What was the body telling me? You have now... <laughs> Which normally isn't a problem for me. It's the speeding up part that I struggle with. Um... <laughs> Paul, you have done something. There's part of your body that is hurting. You need to move said hand. It's not in a space where it should be. These are gifts from God. These are gifts from God. Your conscience is a gift from God. Also, secondly, your conscience is personal to you. Your conscience is personal to you. Paul brings that up here in Romans 14. He says, the faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. The conscience that you have, it's unique to you. It's specific to you. It's birthed out of your experience. It's birthed out of the parenting that you received. It's birthed out of the teachers that you sat under. It's birthed out of the information that you've brought in and assimilated in your own life that has shaped and formed and either strengthened or weakened or cleansed or defiled your conscience. But it's very unique to you in the same way that your story is unique to you. Let's imagine, if we will, that we grab someone who was steeped in the culture and parented in India, and we bring them over here, and I take him to Burger King for lunch. Tom knows. Why is this a problem? If you grew up in India, if your religion is developed within uh, the streets of India, if I put a whopper in front of him, her, what do they believe in India? A lot of them. Hindis, exactly. What? What don't they eat? Any. Any beef, cow, they're not going to do that. 
here's, here's, here's a burger. It's made out of cow. Maybe. <laughs> My conscience isn't affected. Theirs will be, won't it? In fact, they'll be mortified. They'll be mortified to have that in front of them. Why? Because of their conscience. But we don't have to go all the way to the other side of the world. Let's just, you know, from one side of the state to the other. Take Pennsylvania as an example, the state where I grew up in. I got Pittsburgh on one side, we got Philadelphia on the other. Would it be okay for me to ask someone from Pittsburgh who watches the Steelers to cheer on the Philadelphia Eagles? Doug, what did you say in the first service? No, that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, it's, it's the same state. It's just all football. It's all the same, right? What's the difference between one team and another? Just cheer them all on, right? <laughs> Some of your eyeballs are like, you think I would have called Jesus Christ a woman. <laughs> Some of you are like, Heck, you can't do that. You can't do that. Why? Some of your conscience are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't cheer for that team. We're just talking about one state to the other. What about inside of a family? Can you have people of different conscience within one family? Yeah. Husband and wife can see things very differently, can't they? Siblings can see things very differently, can't they? Yeah. Why? Because the conscience is personal to you. M-Y-O-C. Mind your own conscience. That also means that no two consciences are identical. They're not identical. Can there be some overlap? Oh, absolutely. We're going to talk about the overlap, but not completely, not entirely. There's going to be some separation. There's going to be some differences, and that's going to create some tension. You, you look at these letters where Paul is writing, it's because of the lack of overlap, because no two consciences are identical. Another observation. Conscience is like a traffic light. It's not like a dimmer light. A dimmer switch, you know, you can take the light and, just go, and the light goes. Mm. Conscience doesn't work that way. It's like a traffic light. Either it's this or it's that. Either it's yes or it's no. Either it's black or it's white. Either it's forward or it's stop. Be thankful that traffic lights don't dim, right? It's going to kind of transition slowly from green to orange, from orange slowly fade into red. We're thankful for that. The conscience does not deal in nuance. The conscience does not deal in shades of gray. Your conscience is like, it's a yes or it's a no. With that in mind, this is how we can define conscience. It's your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your consciousness, your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. What you believe, it's personal to you, it's unique to you, it's right or it's wrong, there's no shades of gray. These are convictions, these aren't preferences. So we could illustrate it this way. In my course of ministry, I've bumped into more than a few issues that have caused contention between followers of Jesus. Haircut. How long is a woman's hair allowed to be? Some of you are nodding. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. I've seen that come up in churches. You're like, seriously? Uh-huh, oh yeah. Not just women's hair. 
I got in big trouble with the pastor that I had growing up because of how I cut my hair once. That's not inappropriate. You should not have your hair cut that way. Oh, my mom got yelled at. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Haircut. Sure, that's on there. How about vaccines? Yeah. How about alcohol? Mm-hmm. That's come up multiple times throughout the course of my ministry, what people feel or don't feel about alcohol. How about gun control? Yeah. Heartbroken when I found out about the shooting in Texas. At the same time, I knew immediately what was going to happen on Facebook. And it did. It did. People articulating their conscience one way or the other. Body piercings. Toe rings. Toe rings, yeah. I was interviewing for a church in, in New York, and one of the elders came up to me and told me how he relieved he was to see that my wife didn't have a toe ring on. I'm glad I didn't know what that meant, or I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But yeah, he said that there were other interview candidates that he had, and wife had a toe ring on. Okay. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Yep. How we feel or don't feel about Santa Claus? Yeah. Debt. Should a follower of Jesus take on debt? Socialism. Homeschooling. Should you homeschool? Should you not homeschool? Harry Potter. <laughs> you okay, Nathan? You sure? <laughs> I don't know which way we went with that one, but this will be fun. You all right? You'll be positive. Yeah. <laughs> there was a uh, young teenager, Jackson, working on a project, and she's, she's not in her house. She's not allowed to read Harry Potter or watch Harry Potter movies, and I can understand that. I know the church culture that she comes from. Yeah. I poked a little bit. I said, are you allowed to read Lord of the Rings? It has wizards in it. She's like, I know. I don't understand. I'm like, oh, just asking. Women in work. Is a woman allowed to work? I had a woman come up to my wife after she'd given birth to Lucas. Oh, I imagine you won't be working anymore. Brought my wife to tears. Clothing. How should you dress? How should you dress in church? Some churches I have worked in, I would be excised from the church because of how I'm dressed right now. Yeah, absolutely. How long should the skirt be? Not me personally. <laughs> so, a whole scattering of issues. How many of you would say, just on the ones that I brought up, that you feel you have deep conviction about some of those issues? Doesn't matter, just you have convictions about. Own it, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel very strongly about some of the things that you just said. Yeah. How many of you would say, some of those things, I don't care at all? Yeah, all right. Isn't that interesting? My wife and I, our very, very first fight was uh, November. It was the Thanksgiving before we were to get married. 
We were leaving my family's house in Conneautville, Pennsylvania, to drive up to Erie, Pennsylvania, to have Thanksgiving with her family. That's back when we did the two Thanksgiving thing. And on the drive between from my family to her family, we had a discussion. Very heated, heated discussion that brought her to tears, and I ended up pulling the car over. Anyone want to guess which one it was? Santa Claus. How we were going to raise our kids concerning Santa Claus. You're like, well, that's not a big deal. You're like, well, yeah, I understand that. I grew up one way. My parenting, the way my parents brought me up, it was a very specific understanding of Santa Claus. Hers was the opposite. And it was an issue of conscience. And consciences collided. Consciences could collide. Very beginning of my ministry, as a young apprentice pastor working in a big church down in Beaver Creek, one of the senior pastors came and said, hey, there's a woman who would like to talk to you about the music in the church. I'm like, awesome. I participate. This is a big church. It has a full orchestra, string sections, brass sections. We're talking, this is a beautiful, beautiful musical department I had a chance to participate in. There's a woman who wants to talk to you. I'm thinking, I'm going to get accolades. I'm going to get, and then all of a sudden, I should have paid attention. He starts smirking and giggling as he walks off. <laughs> this woman comes up to me. This music is some of the most demonic music I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, what? This is an orchestra. We're singing like, how great thou art. Those drums over there, those, those, they're called timpanis. Those whatever, they draw in evil spirits into the worship service. And some of you are like, I've heard that before in church, yeah. I'm like, well, then I'm like, have you ever been to Cedarville? Demonic. I'm like, oh my gosh. She, her conscience had led her to a place. Her upbringing, her church culture recognized and she was taught that those big round drums are used to bring in evil spirits. I believed something else. Somewhere in some corners, a senior pastor laughing his head off as he threw me to the wolves. It's a matter of conscience. So you can see what happens. What happens you have an individual who, who believes yes on certain things. Conscience says yes, but no to other things, right? And then you have a follower of Jesus in the same church. And, and, and they say yes to certain things. But their yeses are different than these yeses. There's no's that they all share. And there's some things that they share the same. What happens when consciences collide? But there's even something more serious, isn't there, that we need to consider. What does God have to say about it? Because there is no one human being whose conscience perfectly aligns with how Jesus reveals reality to us. It's just a fact. Yet prayerfully, actually in that diagram, there's absolutely no alignment whatsoever when it comes to all three the same. That's sad. Maybe we should just for the sake of. I have to do both blue and red in case the Democrats and the Republicans come after me. <laughs> there's no. 
Some things are in, some things are out. Church is split over this. Family split over this. Marriage is split over this. Siblings won't talk to each other because of this. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul, when he says, you know what love flows from? Love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. To love like Jesus loves requires that I have a good conscience. And so all through the summer, guess what we're going to talk about? How to love each other and the priority of conscience. When they collide, how, do I, how can I be patient and kind? How can I not be rude? How can I go slow with people? Being mindful of conscience. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the church in Rome and in Corinth is trying to help followers of Jesus deal with certain issues that are pricking conscience. It has to do with meat, what they can eat and not eat. It has to do with days of worship, when to worship, when not to worship. And so he tries to inform them to grow a healthy conscience. So what else can we say about conscience as we move forward? Conscience, one, should be obeyed. Your conscience should be obeyed. It is your belief what you believe is right or wrong. It's your consciousness, your awareness that this is right and this is wrong. So if I do something against my conscience, I am, in God's definition, sinning. You're acting against what you believe to be true, what you believe to be right. If you go back to uh, Romans chapter 14, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not of faith. It's talking about uh, meat that was first offered to an idol and then taken to the meat market to be sold. Okay? If you eat that and you believe it's wrong, but you do it anyways, God's like, that's sinful. You're acting against your conscience. That's, the, the conscience is trying to guide you to move forward while at the same time it judges you looking backwards. It's black or it's white. It's yes or it's no. It's green or it's red. It, it, it's, it's not nuanced. And God takes it very seriously. It's a guide that's been placed inside of you for a reason. Your conscience can't make a wrong thing a right thing, but it can make a right thing a wrong thing. Meaning, it can't take something that's outside of God's will and put it inside of it. I know God says this, but I feel this. Oh, okay. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. But maybe God has said something is okay, but for you, you really struggle with it. You need to obey your conscience in that process. This is not about following your heart. This is not about giving into convenience. This is about recognizing convictions. But praise God... Your conscience can change. Your conscience can change. I grew up in a church tradition that gathered on Saturdays. Okay. Many of you know that and know a little bit of my story. Gathered on Saturdays, worshiped on Saturdays. You don't worship on Sundays, you worship on Saturdays, that's Sabbath. Worshiping on Sunday, that's pagan. That's wrong. Okay. I grew up in that. Later towards my high school career, the, the tradition takes a dramatic theological shift, recognizing moments of conscience. We have believed this, but we see that God is teaching us this. It's a beautiful thing. Many people within the tradition went with the teaching. My family was one of them. Some of the families that we grew up with did not. And some of those families never talked to us ever again. 
Consciences can change. Maybe your conscience has changed over some of those things that I just briefly listed. Saying yes, saying no. It can be better, it can be worse. Which means that your, your conscience can be healthy. Healthy. In, in, in Acts chapter 23, the apostle Paul is meeting before a council and a Roman magistrate. And this is Paul's reflection on his life. In Acts 23 verse 1. He says, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You can have a clear conscience. Paul says, I've lived my life in such a way that it honors God. My conscience is good. It honors God. And if the conscience has been marred, it can be cleansed. It can be made whole. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about that. How the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us all from all unrighteousness, including our conscience that was dead. There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Yeah. The conscience can be cleansed. But if the conscience can go that way, we can also imagine that the conscience can go the other way, right? Yeah. A conscience can be misguided by ignorance. Misguided by ignorance. I, I had mentioned Romans chapter 14. That's a big chapter on conscience. Another one is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Same issues, actually, just different church. But it's so important for the apostle Paul that he unpacks it in two different locations. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the issue is, again, meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Some people in the church grew up in a culture where they went to those churches, those temples, those pagan institutions. And so they firmly think that isn't just a statue. That is that God. And the meat that's been offered to that God is now tainted. It's unholy. I'm going to stay. I'm not, I can't eat that. Can't eat that. Others are like, dude, that's a ribeye, man. I don't know what the problem is. And so they're like going to town. So some people are struggling and others are like, what's your deal? Love is not reigning. Love is not ruling inside of this church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, not all possess the knowledge. The knowledge that it's just a statue. Some, through former association with the idols, because of the historical context, because of their parenting, because of their raising, eat food as really offered to an idol. Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You have to understand, he says. They see that as wrong because of how they grew up. And so that's okay. Their conscience is weak. The Apostle Paul will talk and say, I have no problem. I'll eat that. It's good. It's fine. But to them, we have to be sensitive to the fact that they have a weak conscience. It's weak. Because it's weak, it can be wounded. He'll say that a few verses later in verse 12. For you not to respect their conscience and to do something deliberately in front of them will wound them. I had a son who was playing a soccer game yesterday, Aiden, and um, he came off halfway through, look over, he had a bloody nose. 
minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes, this kid's nose is not stopping. Mom had to eventually go over. Let's pinch that sucker. I mean, she kind of like, you ever seen like when the, the cowboy jumps off the horse and wrangles this little steer to tie it up? That's kind of like what Elise did to Aiden. She just like grabs him, puts him on the ground, pinches his nose, because we got to get this boy back in the game, right? I mean, so things have to happen. So she's like, and everyone, everyone on our side, they're like, whoa. Something had happened inside. Now, those of you, maybe some of you get, Bloody noses all the time. My wife used to get them constantly. There's just, there's a weakness inside, you know, the membrane, some in the skin that's easy for it to compromise, easy for it to continue bleeding. Because Aiden's nose was weak inside the rest of the day, he had bloody noses. It was easy for it to get wounded. We see things differently. A misguided Ignorant conscience can be easily wounded. Often these people are overly sensitive to lots of things. Lots of things. Because they just haven't grown up into it. It is not permission, the Apostle Paul says, for you to judge and dismiss them. Maybe God has brought you through something. Or you see it a little bit differently. Love has to reign. You can be misguided by ignorance. Within the scripture, we can see in, in church history things that are of first importance. This matters most. First Corinthians chapter 15, a great example. What I taught you is of first importance. What? The gospel. We did that. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Creed. There are things that are creed. Priority number one. But there's other things that we would call confessional. This is often where you see denominations go their separate ways. Okay? Someone of the Catholic faith, someone of a Protestant faith, their confessions are a little bit different. So much so that you would not participate in, or you would not participate in, because of they're not creedal, but it's more than conscience. Okay? But there's a third level, things that are our conscience. You here, I, we see a lot of things differently. The Apostle Paul bumps and describes, and he says, hey, what's the deal, man? You're off tithing mint, and you're tithing cumin, and you're tithing pepper and garlic salt, and your whole herb cabinet, you're tithing these things, but you have forgotten mercy and justice and the greater things of the law. You got things upside down, guys, what Jesus is telling them. What's first importance, second importance, third importance? So our conscience can be misguided by ignorance. It can also be corrupted by sin. Corrupted by sin. If you go through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, in Hebrews and Timothy, let me list, here's four ways, and you can write these down, but just aware, uh, it can be defiled. Sin can defile it. It can be emboldened to sin. Meaning the more I do something, think, think of the projection of addiction and how that works. The more I do it, the easier it gets to do it, right? Because my conscience is now emboldened to do it. The more I lie, the easier it is to lie. Defiled, emboldened, evil. A conscience can be evil. Evil. Conscience can be seared. Seared meaning it doesn't feel the way it's supposed to feel. We talked about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You see, some of you uh, 
workers of trade, have good calloused hands. I remember a friend of mine in a church I used to work with, who's a construction worker, his hands are like just baseball mitts, just this massive, big, calloused hands. I have baby man hands. <laughs> baby hands, Nathan, right? We good, buddy? Yeah, baby hands. I'm okay with that. Okay, okay with that. I read books, I drink tea, I know stuff. That's me. That's what I do. That's, that's me. I'm all right. I'm okay being me. Thick, calloused hands can endure and handle a whole lot more than my baby man hands can. But a seared conscience, a calloused conscience that's been given over to sin, corrupted and hardened by sin, doesn't feel the way that it's supposed to feel, isn't pricked the way it's supposed to be pricked, because the heart has been hardened and the conscience has been turned. So what does that mean if we tie all this together? That your conscience needs to be calibrated. Calibrated. How do you know what calibration means? Understand calibration. Tuning. You're going to take something and align it according to a standard. This piano is an electric piano, which means it's always in perfect A440 tuning. It's perfect. I used to, in other churches, play at a baby grand, and it needed to be tuned regularly, which means someone would come in with maybe even a tuning fork, which is tuned to A440, perfect. Play that, play the A, play that, play the A. Getting that according to the standard. When we didn't tune the piano, my sound guy, because he was brilliantly talented, would actually have to retune all the instruments in the band to get it according to the piano. Which did mean, while we all sounded okay together, let this moment preach, we were all out of tune. Ooh. Your conscience needs to be calibrated. It needs to be tuned. How do we do that? Truth. God's truth. I submit my conscience to the truth of God. Not emotions or culture or traditions or family, but what God has said. What God says. Let, let me read an illustration. This is John MacArthur talking about conscience. I think this helps. The conscience reacts to the convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's word. Wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it's responding to God's word. I want to get my conscience overlaid with what God has said. A regular diet of scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. In other words, the conscience functions like a skylight. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of light we expose it to and how we keep that skylight clean. Cover it or put it in total darkness, it ceases to function. That's why the Apostle Paul spoke of the importance of a clear conscience. Warred against anything that would defile or muddy the conscience. 
Uh, Mo's going to begin teaching a class in the middle of June. The importance of memorizing scripture. How to fill your heart and your mind with what God has said. She has a very robust habit of memorizing God's word, which informs and shapes the conscience. I would encourage you to sign up outside by my office door. She's going to offer it at two different times. I encourage you to participate in that. And if you spend any time with Mo, you can see the effect of a habit of feasting on God's word. There are many times when I've wanted to move forward in a leadership decision and Mo said, hey, have you thought about this? And I have slowed down. Why? Because I recognize this is a godly woman who has feasted upon God's word. So when Mo speaks, I listen. Terry. <laughs> Truth. Regularly reading. Regularly dealing with sin. Keeping the conscience clean. Truth. And time. It takes time. It takes time to shape a conscience. To conform to God's will. There's a moment in Peter's life where he was knocking it out of the park. And he was able to, because of maturity in Christ, to turn his conscience quickly. He, God said to him, hey, eat that. He's like, I don't eat stuff like that. I told you eat it. Okay. He's able to shift conscience. But you also have moments where he backpedaled and placated to Jews surrounding him and would not associate with Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul calls him out on it, Galatians chapter 2. Conscience can go both ways. It takes time. On the bottom of your notes, use a hexagon. We've written in the word character and kingdom. We've written down uh, provision. We've written down forgiveness. Let's write down the word guidance. Guidance. As we seek God's guidance, let's learn to tune and be attuned to how God is speaking to us through our conscience. Let's stand up, please. And we'll sing. This is a very big issue. Um, I'm actually introducing this topic because it's going to carry through our series this summer as we talk about love. Because the Apostle Paul specifically says, what does love flow from? Love, flow, love flows out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.